Welcome to Acute Conversations, the official podcast of APTA Acute Care, where we share engaging conversations about acute care physical therapy so you can connect to your profession. I'm Ashley. And I'm Leo. Today we chat with Jamie Dyson. He's a clinical assistant professor at Graceland University and practices in acute care at HCA Lake Monroe. Today we discuss advocacy, pet peeves in acute care, and how PT is like Disney World. Let's welcome our guest. Jamie, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me, Leo and Ashley. I love talking, so whatever you guys want to throw at me, I am ready to go. Well, so I've got a question I, wanted to, I just want to highlight. You were recently, uh, you had a role, was it with House of Delegates? What was that? What's the, what did you? Oh yeah, at the, at the last House of Delegates, just a few weeks ago, during the election for APTA board of directors, I was nominated from the floor to run in a runoff for a, the remainder of a position abandoned by uh, Zohar Kaplasi when he got elected to treasurer. So it was, we were all running for a one-year term to finish out the remainder of his term. And so I was nominated from the floor and actually I did pretty well. I came in second, which is pretty good com- as coming from the floor. I didn't have a chance to campaign, but Things did really well, so I'm going to try to get slated for next year. So if anyone's bored and they want to fill out an NC1 for me, I would surely appreciate it. Okay, listeners, you hear that? I mean, it'd be nice to have a acute care therapist on the board of directors representing us. And I have to say, I was there when Jamie was nominated from the floor because I'm a delegate. And you convinced me, like your 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 speech, your statement was amazing. I was I was very impressed, which I'm not surprised at all that I was impressed by you. But yes, it was great. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. And you know, you know, one of my favorite sayings is rehab isn't a spectator sport. You know, we have a lot of folks that they complain about you know healthcare, you know, the reimbursement and the access to care, and you know the 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 journey that patients have to go through through the continuum of care um i i myself take a really active role i'm always up in dc to advocate for better reimbursement i'm talking to the insurance providers to try to eliminate those barriers to care and you know you don't think about barriers in the acute care setting yeah everyone comes in the door it's getting them out the door which can be a bit of a challenge and anything we can do to eliminate those barriers for our patients is only going to benefit us as a profession and the, you know, in the in the long run, the bottom line of the hospitals that we that we work in, to save them as much money as possible by moving the patients through the continuum of care in an efficient manner. Jamie, I believe, and I, I quote you, Jamie, when you said, "If we want to make a change, we need to stop talking about it and do it." Absolutely, there's too many people talking and not enough people um, actually doing something about it, and. You know, APTA is a hundred thousand members strong. If everyone just did a little something, you know, we'd really be able to make some progress. You know, the other issue, and I'm getting on a soapbox a bit, is we only represent about thirty percent of the profession. Imagine if we had fifty percent. Imagine if we had seventy percent. And the, those that complain the most are usually those that aren't a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to motivate others to to join and um, become a part of the solution. You know, it'll benefit us as a profession as well as the patients we care for. Imagine a smooth transition from, you know, ICU to, to a regular acute care to outpatient home health, inpatient rehab, whatever the case may be. 
other countries are doing it and I, you know, we can do it as well. It's just going to take an interdisciplinary teamwork to, you know, come up with a solution to this. I was a patient not too long ago. I uh, had Guillain-Barre syndrome seven years ago. Jamie, I'm so sorry. I contracted it from the flu shot, the annual flu shot. And, you know, one morning I was sitting in the ICU writing some notes. And by that evening, I was sitting in the bed right across the hall from where I was writing notes as a patient. The the transition of the Guillain-Barre happened fairly quickly for me. I was sitting writing notes and I couldn't get up from the chair. And then before I knew it, I was in the ER. And then before I knew it, I was admitted to the hospital and, you know, right next door to a patient a couple of days ago who I was treating. So, and family members were walking by my room saying, isn't that the guy that (laughs) was working with my family (laughs) member a couple of days ago? And now he's in here. First of all, thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, but I mean, I am just really curious. Obviously you've made a great full recovery, but what was that experience like being a patient in acute care, like going from that practicing in acute care and treating patients to being the patient? I would love to hear what your experience was like and if you learned any kind of lessons that you now carry into your practice. Yeah. Well, being on the other side of the table, so to speak, is yeah. is eye-opening. You know, one of my memory, my vaguest memory, well, not the vaguest memory, one of my big memories that I have was being placed in the MRI machine and they had to do a full brain and, and spine um, because of course, GBS is, is a diagnosis by elimination. And for, for those that don't know, an MRI of the brain and spine takes about three hours. Mm-hmm. And I was in the tube getting my MRI while I was continuing to, continuing to progress. And, you know, it had gone from the extremities to pulmonary. And so I'm laying there flat in the MRI machine as my pulmonary was starting to get a little worse and a little worse. I, I never got to the point where, you know, it was emergent, but, you know, a little bit of panic was setting in there. So that was one of my memories. And then, you know, the transition from the hospital and, you know, luckily I had really good insurance. So the transition wasn't that difficult. I, of course, wanted to go home. My wife's a, a neurocritical care nurse. So she's like, yeah, we, we could probably take you home. And, you know, I probably shouldn't hands. have gone home. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have gone home, but I did. And the transition to outpatient was actually uh, a bit of a challenge. I actually had to call the manager of the outpatient clinic because I couldn't get an appointment. You know, here I was discharged from the hospital and with the facilities that I've worked at for over at, by at that point, over 25 years. And I couldn't get an outpatient appointment. So I had to pull my uh, backdoor card and call the manager in order to get an appointment. From there, the approval of visits was, was just a nightmare. The uh, insurance provider would approve visits six weeks at a time, but sometimes it would take two weeks to get the approval. So I'd finish my six weeks. I'd have to stop for a week or two while we're waiting for approval. And then it was retroactive. So the next six weeks started two weeks ago. So I would only have four weeks at a time. So there's a lot of work to be done in, in reimbursement and with the insurance providers. And I've told that story to Florida Blue, which is the Blue Cross here in Florida, as well as some other insurance providers here in Florida. I've actually spoken to my congressman, uh, Darren Soto, who's really a strong advocate for physical therapy. And he's actually brought that that story up um, in Congress mm-hmm. for um, as we're trying to work on changes in CMS. Good for so you. he knows my story really well. 
So again, you know, you could sit back and say, man, this was a horrible time for me, but I'm taking it and I'm using it to help move our profession forward. Jamie, I want to I jump on that a little bit about moving the profession forward. You, know, you talk about getting all hands on deck and, and a lot of new grads and maybe PT students, they're a little bit fearful about how much they're going to be getting paid or reimbursement or just where the profession is going, especially when they're leaving school with a lot of debt. Now, I remember that you were, it was a talk that you were giving about all hands on deck and advocating for uh, better reimbursement for what we do and the skills and the services, the value that we bring to our patients. Now, if I'm a new grad or if I'm a, a student, what advice do you have for them if they're kind of fearful about what's going to happen to the profession moving forward in terms of you know, managing the, the, the debt to income ratio. Yeah. And that, that debt to income ratio is, is off balance right now. Students are graduating with a tremendous amount of debt. And unfortunately, the reimbursement hasn't caught up to the education. So yeah, we're a doctoring profession, which is great. But unfortunately, to achieve that doctorate, there's, there's quite a bit of cost that's associated with it. And there's some, some model programs that are beginning to open up, which are looking at some different models of education, hybrid models and accelerated models mm -hmm. in the hopes of decreasing the debt that's associated with um, coming a doctor of physical therapy. But at the same time, you know, it, even if we get, make some progress in, in the tuition rates, we've got to, got to work on the reimbursement. We are not being reimbursed to the full extent of our education if you compare it to other doctoring professions. Mm -hmm. So we've got to work together to, to get the reimbursement comparable to the education that we have. Now, in the acute care setting, you know, we're not reimbursed specifically for physical therapy. It, it's a mass program, but the um, patients, once they leave the hospital, yeah, the, those therapists are being reimbursed based on, you know, a few different things, but it's not at the rate that um, is comparable to the education. Mm -hmm. In order to overcome this, you know, outpatient clinics need to triple and quadruple the amount of patients that they're seeing, which of course doesn't provide the best care. Right. Or, or they just you know, plumb refuse to see patients with certain insurances, including Medicare. And in Florida, that's a huge issue. Most of our patients are Medicare. And if there's clinics that aren't seeing Medicare patients because of the reimbursement, that's gonna, you know, make more barriers to care. Absolutely. And, you know, part of what I'm trying to do. So, yes, there's a there's an imbalance between tuition and reimbursement. But as we present this to uh, legislators, we don't want to sound a little uh, greedy and saying, yeah, we need to make more money. But mm -hmm. if we present it in a means that says we need to we want to decrease barriers to care. Mm -hmm. And here's why there are barriers in, you know, the multi patients at the same time, not seeing certain insurances that's going to affect their constituents. So they tend to get a little bit more on board when they hear, okay, here's a big problem that's going to affect a lot of people. And here's what, here's some possible solutions that'll break down those barriers to care. You mean we can't just walk into the legislator's office and say, show me the money and have our <laughs> Barry McGuire moment? <laughs> you could. I don't know how far you'd get with that. <laughs> certainly no, try. But, but seriously, <laughs> like it blows my mind because I mean, I think, Yes, I think we we do deserve to make more money because of what mm -hmm. we do. And if you think about how much money we save the healthcare system, like if they could just reimburse physical mm -hmm. therapists a bit better, let us take more yeah. time with our patients, we could provide really good preventative care, right? That would then 
save money down the road mm-hmm. from some of these other procedures and problems and conditions they develop because they haven't been taking care of themselves like they're supposed to. I'm on board with your soapbox, but I agree. Yep. Show me the money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I compare it to, you know, Walt, I, I live in Florida and Walt Disney World. Every year they increase the, the prices to go to Disney World. I think a one day pass is like $150 now. But there's a demand for it. People are demanding, you know, they want to be able to go to Disney World and they're willing to pay whatever it costs to go. Imagine if our patients had that same attitude with um, receiving physical therapy. You know, we need to we need this physical therapy. We want this physical therapy. If we get the the public on our side. Yeah, those those reimbursement rates would go up because mm-hmm. their customers would demand it. Insurance companies are going to listen when their customers are saying, we need better access to physical therapy care. We're just not there yet. And, you know, if you look at physicians, yeah, patients want to be able to see physicians. And well, look at what physicians are being reimbursed. Chiropractors are in there as well. They're getting reimbursed at a higher rate because patients are demanding that, that they have access to chiropractors. And, you know, we kind of need to follow that model and have patients demanding to see physical therapists. And that will only increase the, the reimbursement because the demand will be there. You know, it doesn't cost McDonald's three dollars to make a Big Mac, but <laughs> they can charge whatever they want because the demand is there. We need to be the Disney World, yeah, right. or the Big Mac, whatever. <laughs> Those both sound good. I I remember hearing somebody he was an entrepreneur talking about business, and when you're working with clients, he had said you want to make your clients stark raving fan. They're not just there to kind of receive a service. You want them to say. Man, whatever whatever service they provided, this was amazing. Whether it's like a mechanic, whether it's you know a, a teacher, whatever that is, retail. It's like wow, there's they become a Star Raving fan. I feel in my experience that we as therapists we're not so good about kind of advocating for ourselves. We're just we, we kind of bow our heads down. We do we're our so work. We're so Yeah, exactly. But I don't think we do a good enough job of you know educating our patients and letting them know what value that we can provide. And then, yeah, maybe we are humble, but to kind of show that, hey, you know, based on these experiences, we want our patients and clients to leave saying, man, this is a really great experience. I'm going to tell all my friends, go see Jamie. He's a fantastic. Mm-hmm. I worked with Ashley for three weeks and man, she was amazing. Please go see them. So I, I think that's something that we can work on. And that's something that new grads, students, that's, that's something that for, for every single interaction that they have with a pl- patient or client. That's an opportunity to kind of show the value that we bring. Absolutely. And I always say, you know, we don't brag. We just confess. There and, <laughs> I like um, that. We, you know, healthcare is a customer service based industry. People don't like to think of it as a customer service, but you could have, you know, you could have the best skills ever, but if you don't treat your patients right, they're not going to want to come. But whereas if your skills yeah. are mediocre and you have great customer service, your patient's going to want to come see you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you see it, you know, you see it with restaurants. You see, you know, McDonald's isn't that great, but they treat their customers good. So, yeah, people are going to go get that Big Mac because it's easy, it's quick, and it, it, it tastes okay. And mm-hmm. but their customer service is, your, is, is there. Whereas, yeah, I could get a lot better dinner waiting an hour and a half and, mm-hmm. you know, spending two hours in a restaurant. I don't have that mm-hmm. time. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, to go get that that better dinner, even though it's better, but I'm more comfortable getting something that's a little quicker. There's Mm -hmm. something to be said, though, for customer service, not just being 
about customer service and making patients happy. There's actually research linked to like, if we take the time to listen to our patients yes. and hear their stories, learn about where they come from, their culture, their identity, we're going to provide better tailored mm -hmm. care. We're going to prescribe better interventions that they're actually going to do that meets their lifestyle. And they're going to have better outcomes as a result. So it's not just about customer satisfaction. It's also about outcomes. And mm -hmm. that's what the Absolutely. insurance companies and the legislators need to know and need to hear. Yeah. I mean, the most important person on the healthcare team is the patient themselves. And yeah. everyone else should be working around the goals and the needs of, of the, the patient. And, you know, where, where I'm at, we do interdis interdisciplinary rounds every day. And, you know, part of the things that we talk about it is discharge planning. You know, I, I work in the ICU. I have patients who are still in comas, but we're making recommendations for discharge, you know, from day one. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's something that we, you know, we just do. And, you know, you got to be a little bit careful when you're doing that as well. You don't want to, you know, say, oh, this patient may be able to go home because they'll grab that like a dog on a toy, chew toy and hang mm -hmm. on to it. And so you, you have to be a little bit careful, but, you know, I think it's really important that A, PTs are involved with discharge planning and B, more part of that is interdisciplinary team. You know, you're either at, you know, if you're not on the table, you're on the menu. And that's a saying of my RFPTA CEO. He says that all the time. <laughs> and we, we don't want to be on the menu. We, we want to be at the table making the, the decisions that need to be made on the patients that we serve. Well, Jamie, I think your action speaks, speaks pretty loudly. Look, just reading your bio, you know, you've gotten so many awards, Excellence in Clinical Teaching, the Lucy Blair Service Award. I mean, you, you've done some amazing things. But one thing I know you're really passionate about is unwarranted variation in care. So mm -hmm. I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a not only in physical therapy, but in healthcare in general. And I'm sure everyone listening to this can see this even in the practice setting that they're in. The hospital I'm at, there, there's a group of physicians and their, their practice, as far as weaning the ventilator, is all over the place. So they like their own certain modes of mechanical ventilation. They want, like have their own weaning protocols. So the poor patients are kind of stuck in the middle, you know, depending on which physician is on. And it just kind of slowed down progress. If, you know, we could all just get on the same page with each other, that, that would certainly help. Us as physical therapists, we have, I can't tell you how many articles we have showing that early mobility in the ICU is, is beneficial. You know, it decreases length of stay, decreases delirium. The list goes on and on, but there's a lot of variance in practice for us doing that. You know, mm. unfortunately right now with nursing, we have a lot of agency and travelers coming in to cover the ICUs yes. and I'll go in and move a patient. They're like, I've never seen that done before. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, how many hospitals, ICUs have you worked in? Oh, 10, 11, 12. And so we have all this evidence that, that early mobility is effective and safe and decreases cost, decreases vent days, decreases a whole bunch of stuff, but we're still not there yet. And, you know, we need to, as a profession, promote that, that best care and decrease the variance. I'm not saying there, there shouldn't be some variance, you know, everyone's going to have their particular, particular nuances that they use um, in treating their patients. But you know, the whole group should be moving as, as a population forward and mm -hmm. not have that variance in care um, that you see. We even see it within our hospital. If I'm off a day, maybe that patient won't get out of bed because that particular therapist that picked them up isn't there. But imagine, you know, 
my perfect world is the patient will receive the same care or comparable care, no matter who's working with them that particular day. And that's really where healthcare needs to be. And it's not just PT. Physicians are like that. Nursing's like that. You know, all the, all the professions, depending on what pharmacist is on, will be dependent on which antibiotics are used. It's like, you know, there's just such a variance in this. We have a lot of work to do. Um, well, and I think what I'm hearing you say is, you know, we still need tailored, individualized care to our patients, right? Absolutely. But kind of those overarching themes need to be like threaded throughout. So I'm just thinking like one practical example is like outcome measures. How often do we actually do outcome measures, right? In our day to day, you hear we don't have time, we do this and that. But I always say like, you could say, okay, here's an unwarranted variation in care. Some are doing outcome, outcome measures, some are not. So we could say, okay, everyone's going to do an outcome measure. That could be the, you know, non-variance. But then what outcome measure they select is up to them, you know? So everyone should be weaning patients off the vent. The settings they use might be different. You know, it just, I think it's, I agree Mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. I I just taught a course this past weekend on the complex medical patient. And I was talking about vital signs Mm -hmm. and I asked, People, honestly, how many of you are documenting vital signs on a daily basis? And You're getting on my maybe, soapbox now, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> You've got, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe two or three. Oh, um, out of people. how many people? Oh, there was probably about 50 people. That's the one. Well, no, like, so, I, they, but then a bunch of them said, well, we document them at evaluation. And so, okay, so you're documenting at evaluation. How do you know that they have, if they've changed, you know, to that second mm-hmm. treatment, to that third treatment, to that fourth treatment? And it, it still blows my mind. And there was a study, I can't remember the year, looking at who's documenting vital signs. And, you know, the area of practice that was the best was actually home health. Mm. And, you know, I asked the home health therapist. It's and because the they health, require it. Absolutely. They require it. And there's a place to fill it in. You know, imagine if there was a place on the, the daily notes where you had to fill in vital signs. The, the, the number of people that would be doing it will increase tremendously just because they have to fill in the blanks. And you can't just take them on rest. Don't even get me started. Oh, my gosh. You can't just take them at rest. You also no. have to take them like after activity because we are the only one That's, to see that response. Right. You know? We're you know, in the really. doctor's office and they just sit there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, this I have a story. I don't yeah. know if okay. I've told this friend in this podcast before, but it, it's home health and vital signs. I used to work in home health for about six or seven years at a time in my life when I needed flexibility in my schedule. And I was one of those people because this was earlier in my career. I was one of those people that did not take vital signs regularly. This is partly why I'm almost like it's part of my soapbox now. Mm-hmm. And I learned my lesson, luckily not the hard way, but the moderately hard way. Our home health agency started requiring it like you had to take vital signs every visit. And I was a little resistant to it. I won't lie. But I started doing it on a regular basis. And there was a patient I had seen time and time and time again walk into his home. He is feeling perfectly fine, asymptomatic. I get up my little Omron blood pressure cuff. I take his heart rate and his blood pressure and his heart rate says 30. And I was like, no, that can't be right. Let me take it again. I take it again, 30. And then I'm like, okay, let me just use my good old fashioned manual skills. Let me just actually see if it's 30. I manually palpated him, 30. And how you feeling, Mr. So-and-so? He's like, I'm fine. Let's go. And I was like, no, we're not going anywhere. So I literally, because we were in New York City, got him in a cab, took him to his doctor's office because I called his doctor. They sent him straight to the hospital. He was in complete heart block. 
Mm. Can you imagine if I had started exercising that man? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, after that, I was like, holy cow. Like, I, and ever since I've been a, like, I've been very consistent about my vital signs and passionate and telling everyone about it. And I tell all my students that story because yep. I'm like, I don't want that to be you. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's just something, it has to become the culture of care. And, you know, if we, if we add these things to our culture of care, they mm -hmm. don't become burdensome anymore. You know, I don't even think about having to take vital signs as something you have to do. It's just something that I do. Yeah, it's yeah. just part of your routine. Yeah, it's just part of it. And, Same. you know, I, I'm known for, I have, I write them down on paper towels because it's the easiest thing for me to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll grab a paper towel on the patient's room. I'll write, you know, the initial and then the during and then the after. And, you know, by after a few patients at my breast pockets full of paper towels, but, oh my you know, gosh. I have my. <laughs> you need a more efficient streamlined method. I take oh, in, no. I have a piece of paper. <laughs> okay. Well, paper towels are always available. So. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. But in a gem, sometimes I'll just write them on my scrubs. I've done that before too, because I'm not going to laundry them. So I'll just write them on the scrubs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to have to get ink out of my scrubs. So. <laughs> I'm just imagining so. you, Leo, with numbers all over your scrubs at the end yeah. of the day. <laughs> it's a fashion statement with all of the numbers Absolutely. all over the scrubs. Oh so my gosh. That's uh that's good. Yeah. But you know, you know, you do something enough, it becomes, it becomes habit. And it, it that needs, that's one of those things that needs to become a habit with us across the continuum, not just in acute care. Acute care, it's actually really easy. I mean, ICU, it's very easy for me to write down vital signs. They're yeah. flattering in front of me. Exactly. Yeah. So I really have no excuse not to. But yeah, we need to. That's what my favorite a, line is an arterial line because I can see the yeah. pressure every single second of every single moment of the session. I love it. Yeah. So but then some people complain because they're, you know, oh, they got an art line. One more thing I have to worry about. And like, I know. I'm like, no, I love the art line. Leave that. I out. do too. <laughs> So I have a question for both of you. you know, so Jamie, I had met you, I think, way back in 2015 or 2016. You came to University of Chicago. It mm -hmm. was you, Tracy Norris, Kim Levenhagen, and Jamie Dyson. Oh, no, actually, Jamie. That's me. James Tomskin. James Tomskin. James Tomskin, yeah. yeah. And that meeting, you were talking about vital signs. No, not vital signs, lab values. Mm -hmm. You were on this, like, it was kidney education. Jennifer Ryan hosted it. And you helped change my practice, literally. And that's why I befriended you and then some of these other people that definitely have contributions to APTQK. But you definitely changed my practice for, you know, if somebody's got hemoglobin estrogen levels, we're not treating purely the numbers. We're also treating the patient in the presentation. So Absolutely. I wanted to ask the both of you, because we're talking about working at the top of our practice, soap of our practice. What are some pet peeves that you have of therapists that you feel that need to change to be able to elevate our game? So we talked about vital signs. Mm -hmm. Actually, I remember during CSM, you were actually, that was... That was one of the talks that I went to. You were talking about outcome measures, the use of outcome measures on acute care. What are other things that we can kind of inform and educate these new grads and, and, and or even all grads across the board, practitioners that we need to start doing in order to elevate the profession? For me, and I know, Jamie, this is a big thing for you too, are the words that we use when we have our interprofessional, interdisciplinary communication, right? The way that we present ourselves and have these conversations as opposed to, you know, hi, I'm the physical therapist for the patient 606. Can I work with them today? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, that and, is. When we walk the patient down the hallway. So I'm going to open up that kind of Do you want to yeah. do physical therapy today? <laughs> right. You know, so let, let me throw that out okay. to you. I'll see what's going on. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I know how much time you do know, we have. I am trying to train our, our, 
our therapy staff that it is not up to the nurse whether or not we see a patient in the acute care setting. We are a consultant. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the physicians, you know, the attending physician, whoever the admitting physician is, is consulting us for our expertise. You know, much like, you know, if the patient has a kidney issue, they're going to consult a nephrologist. I don't think I've ever seen a nurse stop a nephrologist from seeing a patient. So, you know, we I need to have that point. <laughs> yeah. We need to have that same mindset. Okay. Yes. I need to communicate with the nurse because they're the gatekeeper of the patient. If I'm working in ICU and I want to get a patient out of bed, if they're going to CAT scan in a half hour, yeah, I don't want to necessarily get that patient out of bed right now. I may want to defer that, but it's not up to the nurse to say, no, that patient, I don't want that patient out of bed. You know, if they don't want them out of bed, they better give me a good reason why they don't want mm -hmm. them out of bed. And, you know, I don't want them out of bed because, all right, they've been bleeding. You know, there may be things that we missed in the chart review. And, you know, not unfortunately, not everything is in the chart. So there could be something going on, but it's still our decision as to whether or not um, we're going to work with that patient. Just yesterday, I had a patient, she had a craniectomy and she was going to have her cranioplasty to have the um, piece of skull put back on. And this surgery wasn't scheduled till two o'clock. And I went in at eight o'clock to say, Hey, I'm going to see, you know, Mrs. Jones at what's not her name. I'm just using that name before, you know, today I'm going to get her up out of bed. And, you know, the nurse was like, you can't see them. They're going to surgery today. It's like, they're going to surgery at two o'clock. It's eight o'clock. <laughs> and yeah. So, you know, I did a little education with the nurse and I ended up, you know, I did get that patient out of bed and they did fine and got them back well before surgery. And, you know, everyone depends on the type of surgery, right? Like. Well, yeah, if they have, right? You know, like if they're in complete heart block and they're waiting they're for a heart, pacemaker, no, that's a get away. Story. Yeah. And so the type of surgery is important too, but right. you know, for cranioplasty, that's actually, you know, that's not going to affect anything. And yeah. I mean, it's good for the patient. I don't have to put a helmet on them anymore and I won't Absolutely. mess their air up anymore, but that's, you know, so we have to be able to make these clinical decisions for the best interest of our patients. You know, there are studies out there, they show every 24 hours of bed rest increases rehabilitation six to nine days. Mm. And, you know, we need to be an advocate for our patients to get them moving as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. At the facility mm -hmm. I'm at, we're an automatic consult. So any patient that's admitted to the ICU, whether it's trauma or medicine or cardiothoracic, we have an automatic consult to those patients. Do we get some inappropriate consults? Absolutely. But it, I think it takes less time to figure out this patient's inappropriate than it does, you know, if you lose two or three days because you're not consulted on a patient who really needs it. Right. So um, I'd rather get those inappropriate consults personally. And, you know, they don't take long. Oh, gosh. Yeah. This patient's been bent bound for five years. They're using a Hoyer lip. I'm not going to make a difference here. Or, you know, they're, they're brain dead. I get consults on brain, brain dead patients. And that's an easy one. That doesn't take long at all to figure that out and, you know, discharge the consult. But we really need to advocate for, you know, ourselves so that our patients' outcomes are the best that they can be. Jim, I want to point out too, just even in your verbiage, again, because words are important, the words that we use, especially when we talk about ourselves as a profession, you didn't say the therapy orders or the therapy, you said no. the therapy consult. And so Absolutely. this whole idea that we as consultants, this is this is like a paradigm shift for some practitioners. I know it was for me because you think of yourself a little bit differently. I love what you said about the nephrologist, right? Or the, 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 the cardiologist, right? The, the cardiologist yes. is not going to ask permission from other healthcare providers. 
they know that their specialty is this. Our specialty is mobility. So we go in there and say, okay, this is, this is the information that I can bring to the table to help benefit patients mm-hmm. in the center of this whole story. So I, I love that concept. And I think our profession would definitely benefit if, if more therapists view themselves as a consultant rather than I'm here to take orders and to just prescribe right. me what I'm supposed to do, walk patient three times a day. That's, the, that's all I'm going to do. Right? It's such a limiting right. viewpoint of, of, of what we can do as a profession. Again, as, as students graduate with a doctor of physical therapy and all this knowledge that they have, you've got, you're armed with all these tools, right? With all this ammunition and weapons to, to utilize to kind of help these patients. Like we as consultants, I think is such a better, better viewpoint to kind of help us out. Well, and in the interest of time, I will not share all my pet peeves, but I will say. <laughs> I've got plenty of them. That was like, I know there's a couple <laughs> I want to throw out there and I'm going to be quick about it. But not every patient needs a co-treat. When yes, so important. Oh, yeah, don't get me started. A last resort. Stirring the pot. Ashley, I'm going to stir the pot, but let's don't, get, let's don't expand on that. We'll talk about that in another episode. But co-treat okay. should be a last resort. Woo-hoo. And then the other thing is it drives me crazy when people complain about a doctor coming in and interrupting their session or a doctor doing this or a doctor doing that. And I'm like, then go talk to the doctor and get yes. to know the healthcare team. Yeah, like absolutely. it drives me crazy. Like I, I talk to the doctors. I get to know them. If you're a consultant, you <laughs> need to talk to them so they hear what you have to say. And you, you have to establish that relationship or, or yes. they are going to walk all over you. Yes. But if you get to know them as a human being. It's Absolutely. different. And I have several more. I was taking notes for future episodes. Yeah. Oh, for- oh yeah. another another big one is it's our policy. Oh, so I can't tell you how many times I've heard it's our policy. I'm like, okay, can you show me the policy? And usually there's not a policy. And, and you know what? If it isn't a policy and it's not right, policies are meant to be changed. And I remember you know, the first time it was a new resident. And they were like, I had a femoral, femoral A-line. And they were like, um, yeah, we, we don't do that. And I was like, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes. You don't, but we yeah, do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just because you don't do that doesn't mean we don't do that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we could talk all day about <laughs> pet peeves and, and funny stories and all of that. But Well, I'm going to shift off of PT for a second, Jamie, because I know that you do martial arts and you teach martial arts please tell me how did you get into that and just whatever you want to share about it because i find that so fascinating yeah i started training when i was eight years old i started in the 70s so and i've been to actually be um celebrating my 50th year um practicing in in 2026 and uh, it's just something is it's been part of my balance and you know we all know that physical therapy can be stressful but you know there's nothing like leaving a hard day at work and beating people up for an hour in the evening to, to, to calm your, calm your stress down a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's always been something that I've done. I've traveled the world, basically practicing and teaching all over the place. And I do practice jujitsu. So I was doing jujitsu before it was cool, before yeah. all the MMA UFC mm-hmm. and, and all of that. And, you know, if you, going back to the first UFC, like, I think it was like 20 years ago, the first yep. one. You know, a lot of fighters I've actually known because, you know, I'd seen them in in the circuit. And, you know, when that first one came out, I was just graduated from PT school. I think it was like 30 years ago. I'm dating myself here a bit. But I was like, okay, 
that my risk benefit isn't there for me to, to compete in this. If I get hurt, I can't work. So right. uh, <laughs> I opted not to do that anymore, but yeah, I've been, I've been training folks for, for decades and, you know, PT and the martial arts kind of work harmonious, harmoniously together. Yes. You know, you both need a, they both need a knowledge of anatomy and physiology and balance. Balance is a big thing. And, you know, I knew about balance before I started PT school. So my experience in the martial arts actually made PT school a little bit easier because I knew the joint manipulations. I knew balance. I knew, you know, a lot of things. So when everyone else is trying to figure out what balance is, I was like, oh, I know what balance is. I've been doing that for, for, for years. <laughs> and yeah. And, you know, our part of our role as physical therapist is, you know, prevention of injury. And I see the martial arts as an extension of that. I work in a trauma center, so I can't tell you how many folks we have come in as a result of an assault, you know, whether yes. it be a physical attack, a gunshot wound, a knife stab wound, whatever the case may be. And, you know, if I can prevent just one person from, from going through that, I've done my job um, by training folks in the martial arts. So it is an, a bit, a bit of preventative medicine yeah. um, by training folks to be able to defend themselves. So Jamie, real quick though, for that, our audience that doesn't understand what jujitsu is, how is jujitsu unique as a martial art? as opposed to other types of martial arts. Okay. Well, it, it's kind of funny because jujitsu is the gentle art. Yes. And the <laughs> history from it comes from, it's a Japanese art. It, believe it or not, didn't start in Brazil. It started in Japan. And it was the, the, it was originally developed by Japanese monks. And their religion told them that they could not strike another human. But there, yep, was, lots of, there was lots of thievery mm, in Japan back in those days. So they developed this, this way of defending themselves that didn't involve any striking. It's all done through manipulation of movement, balance, and joint manipulation. And so they were able to successfully defend themselves. The, the really cool part is once they defended themselves, they would actually help to heal the person that attacked them. Which and is exactly what you're saying, a Jamie. A lot of martial wow. artists for, have forgotten that every martial art has some sort of healing property with it as well. Most of that has been lost through commercialism. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why, you know, my PT and martial arts is kind of my yin and yang hell where people, you know, I can, I can hurt people, but I can also heal people. And, you know, healing them is a lot harder than hurting them. It's really early, easy to hurt somebody, but to be able to heal somebody is, is true technique and it's true magic in my opinion to be able to, to do that. Jamie, we are about 40 minutes in. I think it's time for our rapid responses. Dun, dun, okay. Dun. When, when I think rapid response, I'm thinking a code that's called in the hospital and some patients in trouble. But I, well, that's I'll, why we I'll, named I'll, it this. That's why okay. we titled it. Okay. I got you. So essentially, All we're right. going to give you how long, Ash? A minute and a half we normally do. Yep. minute and a half. We're going okay. to hit you with some questions and you just answer them as fast as you can. Okay. All right. All right, ready? and go. All right, Jamie, what's your most favorite scrub color? The darker, the better. Whatever doesn't show poop and blood, that's my color. Awesome. <laughs> Do you prefer dogs or cats? Dogs, absolutely. Jamie, what is on your playlist when you're working out? Playlist, anything that gets the heart pumping. You know, I'm, I'm kind of old school rock, so lots of old rock. Okay, cool. Awesome. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning, absolutely. Favorite thing to have for breakfast to start the day if you eat? Oh, I'm an eggs and bacon guy. Fantastic. Favorite TV show? 
right now I am I, I watch a lot of news and that's kinda of, I kinda of look forward to see what's going on in the world. What's the last like binge or marathon that you that you did in terms of watching a show? Oh, Ozarks. Ozarks. Yeah. Oh my gosh, mine is suits right now. Okay. <laughs> Favorite book. Favorite book? Well, I've been reading a lot of textbooks lately. I actually just finished a chapter for the or the the or, oh god the orthotics textbook. So I'm gonna say that one right now. I got a, a question for you right here. What's your favorite jujitsu submission? Oh, the strangle. Ooh, Absolutely, the strangle. They go up quick. Now you're talking a foreign language. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Okay. Time is up. But your last one is you have to fill in the blank. You know you work in acute care when. When your shoes are no longer white. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Jamie, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a delightful conversation. Thanks if our, for having me. If our viewers wanted to reach out to you, how could they find you? They can find me via my email. It's Jamie Dyson, J-A-M-I-E-D-Y-S-O-N-224, which is my birthday if you want to send me a card, at gmail.com. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah. you for having me. This was fun. I, it doesn't feel like we were just talking for 40 minutes. So. Right. Yeah. And then again, I just want to say thank you again, Jamie, for all that you do for our professional, all you do for APTQ care. You've definitely been uh, someone that's influenced me and you've passed the baton to me for certain things. And so thank you for, for pushing me in the right direction. I know that's something that you kind of talked about, the influence that you had on students and new grads. So thank you for all that you do. Yeah. And, you know, we, we got to nudge. We got to nudge our next generation. That's, you know, we could we could talk another 40 minutes on that. So I'll just sleep. When we have you back, when we have you back. Absolutely. Let's go out and make PT or Disney World. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Thank I you so it. much for having me. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. We would like to thank Jamie for joining us today. Acute Conversations is the official podcast of APT Acute It is hosted by Leo Orgulis and Ashley Poole. Executive produced by Katie Brito and Edward Mathis. Music by Alexia Action from Pennsylvania. For more information about APT Acute Care, please visit our website, aptacutecare.org. Be sure to check out our show notes for links and resources from the Academy. If you found value from our podcast, please be sure to subscribe, follow, and share with your friends and colleagues. Join us in two weeks for a conversation with Rebecca Seagraves, Jessica Seagraves, Ann Crogan, and Erin Licati about acute care for the pregnant and postpartum population. Thank you for listening, and may your shoes and scrubs stay clean today. Just imagining you, Leo, with numbers all over your scrubs at the end yeah. of the day. <laughs> it's a fashion statement with all of the numbers Absolutely. all over the scrubs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs>